0: You can turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 14 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. Um, Romans 6. So in the in the church calendar, uh, the liturgical calendar, which uh, determines what color the tablecloth is and... Um, you know, the mood that we're supposed to uh, have during each season of the church. In the church calendar, there are 40 days of Lent. Um, it's a time of uh, fasting, preparation, um, repentance leading up to Easter. So we've just emerged from the time of Lent. And then there's a period of 40 days after Easter uh, leading up to the Ascension, which is uh, the remembrance of the time when Jesus left to go to heaven. Um, uh, and Easter, these forty days, should be a time of, of joy, of hope, of uh, gratitude and thanksgiving to God, and I say it should be, because I think it's rare that we actually celebrate the Easter season with the same kind of uh, intentionality that we do, the season of Lent. Um, often we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on uh, Easter Sunday, and then we return to kind of the same old um, humdrum till Christmas time, right? Uh, but Easter probably deserves a little more attention than that. Uh, In fact, I think Easter deserves at least as much attention as uh, the cross, which is saying that the resurrection is as important as anything in the gospel. Um, It's as important as anything to our faith as Christians. Every time the apostles uh, preach the gospel that's recorded in the book of Acts, Jesus' resurrection was kind of a central part of their message. Um, And so for a couple weeks now, uh, we're going to look at the significance of the resurrection. And this morning, um, we'll think about the bearing that the resurrection has on our sanctification, which is the big fancy church word for uh, progress in holiness, right? The actual living out of holiness and growing in our obedience. That progress, that process is called sanctification. So this morning, we're going to think about how the resurrection uh, has significance for our sanctification. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll read from Romans 6. Father, as always, we come to you uh, trusting in your promise that uh, you are with us, that that you have given us your spirit to help us understand your word, to help us to be changed by it. And we pray that that promise would uh, truly work itself out this morning as we come to your word. Uh, We pray that you would humble us underneath your word and that you would also lift us up by your word. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, we're jumping into the middle of Paul's uh, letter here, um, the middle of his argument. He's, he's uh, at the point in the argument of his letter to the Romans where he's answering objections to the gospel of grace, uh, really to the concept of grace. Um, he has been, uh, for several chapters now, reasoning that salvation is by grace alone. It's something that uh, we receive by faith alone. Uh, It's something that's found in Jesus Christ alone, nowhere else. Um, And it's normal for us, I think, apart from um, having God kind of smack us upside the head with it, uh, it's normal for us to think that God receives good people, right? Uh, Good, law-abiding people are the people who receive favor from God. Those are the people that God welcomes into his presence. But Paul has shown in the letter to the Romans so far that no amount of law-keeping, no amount of morality or virtue or obedience to God will have any effect on our forgiveness and acceptance by God. Uh, The law of God has no power to cleanse you from your sins. It can only point out your need for a Savior. There's no way you can possibly earn God's love, but it's okay. He freely gives it to you anyway. Um, Your sins are forgiven. You're reconciled to God uh, by sheer grace, by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, to be received, um, the sacrifice is to be received by you uh, by faith, apart from anything that you've done to deserve it, to merit it. Now, for some, uh, what Paul's been talking to you up till this point in his letter to the Romans, uh, this emphasis on the grace in the gospel uh, leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Right? Uh, there, there were a lot of people historically who were opposed to Paul's message, who tried to kill him, anything to get him to shut up, right? They were opposed to Paul's message, and these were largely religious people, uh, religious people with a deep appreciation for God's law, right? uh, They were looking for every opportunity to, to ridicule and undermine the message of the gospel of grace because it, it threatened their own piety, right? It threatened their religiosity. It threatened their attempt to justify themselves spiritually before God, to feel good about um, themselves, about who they were and what they'd done before God. Historically, we would categorize Paul's opponents here as legalists, Right? Uh, people who focus a lot of attention and energy on the law of God in order to salve their consciences, in order to become better people, uh, in order to make themselves acceptable in god 's sight, even. Uh, and, and these people were insisting that paul 's message so much talk about grace, so much talk about grace, threatens the concept of obedience to God. Right? It threatens the concept of holiness. When um, you know really it was it was threatening their attempts at self salvation right, but that 's what they 're saying is that uh, so much talk about grace undermines any concept of obedience and holiness toward god uh, they say if it 's all about god 's grace in forgiving your sins, that uh, no matter what you 've done, God will forgive you, and that this uh, glorifies him for his grace then why not just continue in a constant state of sin right a- in order to provide God with more opportunities to show you his grace therefore more opportunities to be glorified for his grace right you just stay in your sin right um, come on I mean, it's obviously terrible right something instinctive uh, about that just says no that, that's not right um, but that's the logic of the gospel isn't it Paul they would say um his answer is no. Uh, we'll get that. We'll get to that in just a minute. I do think it's important to look uh, briefly at, at just what's happening here with the objection that's raised by the legalists. Right? Um, legalists look at the gospel of grace, which is uh, received um, from God as special revelation. Right? God spoke this. God acted this into the world. This gospel of grace. It's from God, and they're, uh, they look at that, and they see licentiousness. Uh, they see the idea that, that grace gives you the license to continue sinning, right? If you're just going to be forgiven for it, uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, you go ahead and keep on living in open rebellion against him, totally disregard his law in your life, right? Um, the technical term for that position is... Uh, Antinomianism. So say that one five times fast. Um, It it just means against law, right? Legalists look at the gospel, they look at the true gospel of grace, and they label it as antinomian. Uh, They look at the gospel and they label it as being against the law. They see the emphasis on the grace, and they assume that it means the complete casting aside of the law, a refusal to submit to God. In obedience. Now, uh, do you think religious people like us, uh, religious people in our church, in our denomination, religious people in in circles like ours, are more likely to be legalistic or antinomian? Pro-law or against law? Which one? Um, It's probably legalistic, right? I mean, that probably describes me a lot of the time. Um, So if if we're really preaching the true gospel here, then um, what complaint do you think we're most likely to hear from people? The complaint that we focus too much on grace, right? That we need to talk more about holiness and obedience. You know what? Um, I wouldn't be upset if we got complaints like that. I would be sorry that it seems maybe these people don't understand grace, right? They're not getting something about grace. But I'd be encouraged that we're talking about the right things. <laughs> we're talking about grace, which to the legalist uh, looks like it's against the law. Right? Now, I don't want to give some kind of, uh, uh, or have some kind of mar- martyr complex about it, right? But um, if we get in trouble for the same reasons that Paul got in trouble, then I think we're doing okay. Right? So if we're preaching the gospel of grace um, and we're being labeled as antinomian, which does happen. I have heard those complaints. Um, I think we're all right, as long as we're sticking to Paul's gospel, (laughs) right? Um, Because the Bible, uh, I'm not worried, the accusation of uh, being antinomian is not going to stick, right? The Bible clearly condemns antinomianism. Uh, Jude 4, uh, Jude talks about ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, right? We believe that holiness is very important and that our obedience is expressed through keeping God's moral law. As we read in the, uh, the Old Testament reading, Psalm 119, the law is perfect. And I want to live according to that, right? Um, so we're not antinomian, but we're not um, legalistic in our theology. And we, we don't just think it's a matter of finding the right balance, right? How much we emphasize grace, how much we emphasize law. We've got to talk about those things in balance, right? Um, No, in fact, we think grace is behind everything in the Christian life. Grace actually drives our holiness. It actually fuels our obedience to God. Um, Paul wrote in another letter uh, to Titus in chapter 2, he says this, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." So the grace of God in the gospel, Jesus Christ giving himself for us to save us, is the same kind of grace that compels us to renounce ungodliness, to pursue godliness, right? To live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age and be zealous for good works. Um, What God has done for us in the gospel, in the person of his son, it changes our hearts. It changes our lives. Um, God doesn't just have... Forgiving grace toward us in Christ, he has transforming grace for us as well, which is what the, the legalists who are opposed to Paul here uh, didn't understand, right? They say, um, he's kind of raising their argument in, in verse 1 for them. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is grace just a license for sin? Go ahead and keep on living like, um, like whatever, you know? Um, well, maybe if God's grace were limited to forgiving sins, maybe, but, uh, but since God's grace also frees us from our sins, then no. no. God's grace is exalted as, as it frees us from our sins, too. Paul, uh, Paul proceeds then to show how the gospel of grace actually has an impact on our holiness, on our sanctification. Uh, and the focus of his argument is on the death and maybe even more centrally on the the resurrection life of Jesus. Paul's argument is, is in a way, kind of sort of uh, summed up in verse 2 with the rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So in a statement form, uh, he is asserting that Christians have, in some sense, died to sin and therefore should not continue in sin. It says, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So without getting into all the theology of baptism here, we can say that Paul understands water baptism to be a sign of an inward spiritual reality that all believers share, right? Um, when you put your faith in Christ, when you trust in him for your salvation, and you're, you're baptized into Christ Jesus, you are personally united to him. And the water rite uh, is, a, is a symbol and an assurance, of that spiritual reality. And so what this means is that everything about Jesus' humanity, if you are connected to him by faith and through your baptism, if you're united to Christ, everything about Jesus' humanity is yours. His righteousness, his perfect record of obedience is imputed to you. It's counted uh, to you. His death on the cross is yours. In a sense, you were there his resurrection is counted as yours. His reward in heaven belongs to you, all because you are united to Jesus by faith. Uh, Paul is applying the gospel of the death and the resurrection of Jesus to the present, right? To how we live before God in the here and now, how we walk in newness of life, right? You could preach a whole sermon series on this chapter, and unfortunately, um, we don't have the time to look at it every phrase that's going on here, uh, but but this is the gist of what Paul is saying here. Because you are united to Christ, and because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, you died and were raised from the dead in a way that delivers you from the power of sin. It delivers you from the power of sin. Paul says in uh, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him. That is to say that the person that you were apart from God, the person that you were um, before you believed and, and um, trusted in Christ for his salvation, uh, the person that you were before, the one who was a slave to sin, the one who loved sin more than uh, loving God, the one who deserved to die under the wrath of God against sin, that person did die under the wrath of God against sin when Jesus died under the wrath of God against sin on the cross. In a sense, your connection to Christ, uh, which is uh, especially pictured here in baptism, in a sense, your baptism... Uh, was a funeral for that slave to sin. It was a funeral for that slave to sin. And in a sense, it was also a resurrection. It was a new beginning of a new person in Christ. And that new person is not a slave to sin. Uh, Verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's a lot going on here. Uh, John Stott says this about uh, this passage. Whenever sin and death are coupled in the Bible, the essential nexus between them is that death is sin's penalty. Christ bore sin's condemnation, namely death. He met its claim. He paid its penalty. He accepted its reward. Later in Romans 6, uh, Paul says that uh, the wages, the reward of sin is death. Jesus accepted his reward. Sin has no more claim or demand on him. And if you are united to Christ by faith, then sin has no more claim or demand on you. You are emancipated. You are free from it. Your old self and its slavery has died. It's something that's true of everyone who believes in Jesus, right? Not just the uh, super spiritual people. Not just the, the really good holy people. This is true of you if your faith is in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are your old self and its slavery has died, and your new self lives with Christ, you are alive to God. You're never to die for sin again, which means you're never to return to sin's dominion and power again. In Christ, you have a new identity, you have an immortal nature, one that You look at yourself and you say, I don't believe it. (laughs) But um, you look at Christ and say, maybe I can believe it. Your new nature is humble. Your new nature is selfless. Your new nature is loving. Your new nature fully and truly submits in every way to God. The fact that you are free from slavery to sin is guaranteed by the fact that Jesus is free from sin and death forever, never to die again. Um, Revelation 1 gives us the picture of Jesus um, as the risen and glorified Lord. He says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So verse 11 of our text. So, you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So this is the way Paul argues in all of his writings. right? The truth of the, go- the, the, truth of the gospel is this, so now act like it. You're dead to sin and you're alive to God Now reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, and don't let sin enslave you anymore. It is not your master anymore. Uh, N.T. Wright has a good way to illustrate the way that this works for us, the way the gospel and the the way that we believe the gospel um, kind of works in our lives, the way that Paul sets it forth. N.T. Wright says this, When I add up the money in my bank account, that does not create the money. It merely informs me of the amount that's already there. The spiritual reality is that all your debts are paid off and that your bank account is full. Knowing that, considering that, changes the way that you live. Once you realize that your old self is dead, you should want to have nothing to do with it any longer. John Stott says that regenerate Christians, uh, Christians who are made alive by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. Does someone united to Jesus Christ, free from sin's guilt and wages, Alive forever to God and looking forward to glory, does that person still give himself to be ruled by sin? You've been translated out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. Now live as a citizen of that kingdom. Parents, all those times that you've screamed at your kids in anger this morning, You're forgiven. That's not who you are anymore. The person that's characterized by that, who is enslaved to that, that person died with Jesus on the cross. And now, you are alive as a new person in Christ, in his resurrection, and your new nature is to be patient and gentle. Consider that and live like it. Children, you're all out of the room right now. <laughs> Tell us to your children, parents. <clears throat> children, all those times you've stubbornly resisted your parents. Right? If your faith is in Jesus, you're forgiven. That's not who you are. Jesus is alive and you're alive to God in him. And in him, you are a perfect child. You're a perfect child of God. So honor your father and mother. All those times that you've uh, looked at porn on the computer screen, that does not define you. That is not your identity. The person that those things defined died on the cross with Jesus. You walk in newness of life with the resurrected Christ, and now you're defined Believe it or not, by self control and godliness. Believe it, right? Believe that and don't obey the passions of sin, right? All those times that you've sinned, all of them, whatever they were, whenever they were, you've been forgiven and you've been freed by Christ's death. And through his resurrection, you are truly alive to God, you're granted a new nature. You're granted everything that you need for godliness. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then the grace of God has already changed your life forever. So let the knowledge of that sink in and let it change your life today. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard for us to believe that you love us, that you gave your son Jesus for us, and that the, the power and glory and grace that come to us through his resurrection are true. These things seem so outside of our regular experience, yet uh, we see them in your word. We know that they're well testified to as facts in history, that Christ is, is, uh, has died and he is risen and that it was for us, and it was on our behalf, and that we were there with him if our faith is in him, that we're united to him by faith and through our baptism. And so we pray that you would help us to keep these things in mind, that you would help us to realize the fact that we are new people in Christ, that we have a new identity, a new nature, and that that nature is perfect and alive to you. We pray that this would truly change the way that we live, change the way that we engage with people in our families and at work and with our friends, and we pray that um, as we are changed by your grace, you would receive the glory that your grace deserves in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.